Welcome to episode eight, our final episode of this Yellow Ladybugs podcast series on autistic girls and teens mental health. I am Katie Kulas, CEO of Yellow Ladybugs, and for this episode, we will be discussing how to support neurodivergent parents, and we will have three autistic panelists, Alison Davies, Danielle Wilson, and Manda Nelson. This podcast series shares some of the most powerful content from our Autistic Girls and Teens Mental Health and Safety Conference, which took place in June 2021. We hope it will provide a valuable source of support and guidance for our community and all those who support them, including parents, carers, and teachers. So let's get underway with Episode 8, Neurodivergent Parenting. Okay, hi everyone. I'm Katie Pullas, CEO of Yellow Ladybugs, and I'm so excited to be bringing you this long overdue and much needed discussion on how we can better support neurodivergent parents. Our three panelists bring a deep level of enhanced lived experience to this topic. Alison Davis is an autistic mother of two neurodivergent children and also happens to be a neurologic music therapist who specializes in regulation for both children and adults. Hi, Alison. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Danielle Wilson is an ADHD dyspraxic and autistic student teacher, neurodivergent parent, and passionate advocate for educating others on accepting and integrating neurodivergence in everyday life. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Katie. And we've got Amanda Nelson, who's an illustrator and designer and proud to be a third-generation autistic ADHD currently raising two neurodivergent children. Welcome to you, Amanda. Hi. I'm really looking forward to hearing from all our panelists today on both the deep and profound positives of being a neurodivergent family, but also the struggles and challenges and the importance of radical acceptance and cultural change that we need. There's so much to get into, so let's jump into it. I'll start with question one. Um, which is why is the panel discussion on neurodivergent parenting so overdue? And I might start with you, Alison. Um, sure. Uh, before I speak, I'd just like to acknowledge the rightful owners of the Tomagini country, which is where I live and where I'm coming from right now in so-called Tasmania. Um, and I'm very pleased that you asked this question because it's like fundamental. We're, we're so stuck in a in a narrative that, well, okay, so anyone who is a parent of neurodivergent children or an adult, um, we were children at a time where being different wasn't understood, inclusion wasn't a conversation. When children in our classrooms as children in the 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s or earlier stemmed or were different or had support needs within a public space or within a classroom, it was nothing like it was now. It was treated differently and um, children were ostracized. And so we as adults and as parents of neurodivergent children, whether we are neurodivergent ourselves or not, if we have neurodivergent children, we are conditioned by what we experienced as children ourselves. We have so much fear. And it's perpetuated by the way, um, you know, by the way still so many people talk about autism and um, just the language that's used. And um, even though we're getting so much better at inclusion, there's still so far to come. So, you know, so much more we need to do. So we are experiencing a narrative that isn't quite right combined with our own deeply conditioned understanding of what we think autism means from our own childhood and seeing that and being a child witnessing other children being ostracized or not included or not having the same opportunities as we did. And no matter how deeply accepting we are of our neurotypes, I really feel like there's a lot of work to be done to really shed the fear and the mistruth that come with our own upbringing and the narrative that we grew up with around autism. I've kind of forgotten what your question was. I don't even know if it's related. No, that, was, that was really good. I just, you, you spoke about our own fears and mistruths and what we've grown up with, and that really does intertwine in our own understanding of, of autism. And there's a lot of neuro-questioning um, people, adults out there that have, have got um, autistic children. Do you want to have any – do you want to expand yeah. on that a bit? That – 
um, you know, I think that's one of the main reasons that a lot of parents are unsure whether to go down the path of assessments. Uh, and that's why you hear a lot of people going, I just don't want my child to be labelled. And I really feel that we have, um, we don't even really know what the word labelled means. I think we use it, some people use it to mean diagnosis, some people use it to mean discrimination, and then there's this grey space all between those two ends of what people are using that word to mean. Um, and so when I believe that when most people say, I don't want my child to be labelled, what they're saying is, I don't want my child to be treated differently or discriminated against or not included or not have the opportunities. Um, and that's because that's what we saw happening when we were children. So it's it's understandable that we have that fear. Um, but I would love this conversation. I think one of the really important reasons that we have this conversation is so that we can like deconstruct the idea of discrimination from diagnosis because they don't have to be together. They shouldn't be together. Um, and diagnosis, when we think of it as an identification or clarity into who we are and identity, it's a beautiful, wonderful, important, essential thing that we need. Um, and discrimination should never be attached to that. So this word label uh, is very, very misconstruing and, and confusing. And I think when we have this conversation and people start to recognise the difference between that, a lot of parents who hold fears around discrimination can start to see clearly the difference between identity seeking and what their fear for their children is. Wow, so spot on. And I think it's such a journey for parents to go on and break down that generational trauma or trauma their fear. I think the word fear speaks a lot to people's reluctance, like you've explained, and I think many will relate to that. And um, you are seeing so many at Yellow Ladybugs adults now looking to get um, access to their understanding of their identity and you spoke about identity and and I think that's a really good word, identification rather than diagnosis. I think it frames it a lot differently and, and that's what we're hoping to talk about today a bit further. So thank you, Alison. Yeah, was... Just quickly through yeah. Ian, sorry. Absolutely. I'll be quick. Um, because the other thing is that for autistic families, we're looking at generations of autism that were never identified before now. So there's not just fear, there is a deeply ingrained internal ableism yeah. run through autistic families that adds another layer to why it's difficult for us to break through. Um, Hold on. I know. And I know Manda will talk about that a bit. But Danielle, we'll jump to you because I think that's a good segue. I'd love to know your thoughts on this particular area, why this um, topic is so overdue to talk about. Absolutely. And um, the thing that I really um, want to highlight as well, as Alison said, is the intergenerational thing. We have family members, and I'm sure many can resonate with, you know, uncle so-and-so was a little bit, you know, he went out to the paddock and worked a lot. Um, and we talk about, you know, family members that made adjustments that they were socially recognisable. But nowadays, because, you know, I'll get tired of that one, but we do, we can recognise in our families that there were inconsistencies. And now yeah. we're starting to get to a point where the information is there and we can draw those correlations to what we saw before. Um, so having these kind of conversations, I hope, gives those parents some freedom to say, maybe. And if that's enough to get that little um, a bit of information in, then we are we're offering so much just in that little 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 bit of this. Um, but on the on, on what the, the, the original question, because I I know we got all over the uh, we talked about some really good things in the last question. Um, so I personally, um, I was diagnosed very young. Um, I was not, I was a teenager. So my diagnosis came before or at the same time that I emerged into parenthood. Um, I was a young mum, a single parent, an Aboriginal. Um, I, so having generational trauma, I'd escaped family violence. I was the edge of society. Um, and I still very much am. And I think a lot of parents can identify with the fact that they don't fit in the main crowds of parents. They don't fit in with the main crowds of, of people with children who have disabilities because our kids are quite unique and wonderful beings and they all are but we know that um we we're in this weird middle ground of everything and at the same time neurodivergence is very much a polar either on one side or the other when we think about how we think and things like that i know myself being adhd it's on or off it's go or stop um and i think probably six myself then but i know many people have those comorbidities of adhd and uh, other bits and pieces. Um, and as a child, um, being traumatized in, in school was such a, an experience because we were outside of the edge. We never fit in. 
um, as children. And I think that that trauma never really left us. And now as parents, we don't want our children to go through that. We don't, we are fighting for our children to not be left in those positions that we were left in and to languish. But at the same time, when we hear the words of said labels and, and things like that, the missing thing is their accommodation. And we have no problem accommodating other children for, you know, giftedness and things like that. And even there, it's still difficult. But when we look, we, we're now getting to a point of our saturation of population. And like, you know, think back to, you know, way, way back in the day, we all had roles in the tribe or clan or whatever we would have had back in the cradle of civilization. And now we've got so many people in our society that we're back to having specialized roles again, which should have always been there. But, uh, when those specialized roles have such a population, um, it becomes polar. And for the longest time in education, this is my, my area of expertise as well. Um, in education, for so long we have been, um, so consistent as keeping everything the same. The kids need to be standardized, standardized tests. They all need to be achieving the curriculum. They all need to be doing A, B, C, and D. But the truth is that doesn't fit every mold. And now we have so many kids and so many adults who don't fit that mold. And now we have to wonder what are we going to do next? And panels like this and discussions like this enable us as parents to take the leadership in what we're doing with our children and create something amazing and magical with that that's encouraging and inclusive and particularly in terms of neurodivergent culture many of us already do it i mean we're all sitting here with gym toys uh, i've got you know five pieces of water bottles um <laughs> i've got so many pieces of paper and devices around me because i need all those my five year my six-year-old is fantastic with a tablet goes to school and wonders why she can't pause the video on the smart board to so she can have a moment to process what was said and so by giving these kids a chance to be themselves with the things that we have in our society, we can enable so many kids to not have them traumatized from a young age and maybe lose that PTSD thing that we all carry through up into our adulthood and maybe create our own circles at the same time, much like we are now. Wow, yeah, definitely. I really resonated with that and it and I think when our neurodivergent children or children in general start attending school, it does bring back a lot of trauma and it becomes full circle. And I think that's where we do see a lot of adults starting to question um, all those flashbacks of childhood and the accommodations they never received um, come flooding back. So I think that you're right. This is a valid um, time that we do need to bring this up and start creating our circles so that we can change it for the next generation. So thank you, Danielle. That was just so insightful. So much in that to unpack. I can't wait to rewatch that. <laughs> uh, no, I love the info dump. I loved it. It was so good. So it's all or nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's the way to be. Um, I'd love to hear from Amanda next. I know she's got a interesting um, history that she can talk to. So Amanda. Yeah. Um, same, I'm also on a different land, so I would really like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people where I'm currently residing. Um, in regards to, I'd briefly just touch on what Alison um, mentioned about that uh, parents being identity seeking um, and the fear of a label equaling discrimination. Um, I think that have got a lot of rainbow lorises in the background. <laughs> Um, neurodivergent parenting, I think, is so overdue because of that understanding of the label so far. People have been afraid of it, whereas in, in my experience, having a label gives children and adults that uh, understanding of self-identity, going, I'm not just broken, I'm not, I'm not crazy, I am autistic. This is why I am who I am. Um, and so teaching the adults not to be afraid of this label can give them some understanding of their children and themselves as well moving forward. So I think that's really, really important. Um, and then uh, touching up on what Danielle was saying, that um, this parenting methodology has always tied up until this point, has always tied into those educational systems where it's all been standardized. So the parenting has been, we want our children to be successful. You know, we want our children to have a better lives than we may have had or 
uh, more resources or whatever it is. Um, because obviously we only want the best for our children. Um, so to fit in with that sort of standardized model, we are then trying to raise our children to fit into this mainstream idea of success. So up until this point, we've been trying to raise them to fit in a mold, to shave off the corners and make sure that they uh, go into a full-time job for 20 years or whatever it happens to be, you know, high-paying things because that equals success. But uh, I think that an overhaul of neurodivergent parenting is overdue because that's not how the world works anymore. It's just not. You know, my idea of success for my children is not that they have a high-powered, executive, stressful job, but that they have a work-life balance, that they uh, have a sense of contentment about their lives, that they have a sense of self-worth and identity. And I think that I have that sense as a parent because of how I was raised, because I wasn't raised in the mainstream white bread way um, and uh, it irks my mum no end to say I was raised by crazy hippie parents but it's the simplest description I can give uh, to somebody where they instantly know what I'm talking about and neither my mum or dad are still crazy hippie parents but when they had me at 20 and 21 they were deep in to um, yoga and spirituality and my dad wanted to be a breatharian and live in a tree and only survive on air and, you know, those things that we all go through when we're 20, you know, the, the, the crazy expressions of, of, of who we are and what we're searching for. So I spent most of my childhood in combi vans or teepees or up in... Even in somebody's backyard or driving across the Malibor and sitting on dad's lap and steering and the, the things that the mainstream parenting didn't do. So, uh, both my parents are also autistic. My father was diagnosed just prior to me. That was the kick in the butt that got, made me get diagnosed. And that was nearly 20 years ago. Uh, and my mother was diagnosed I think last year um, prior to uh, just after she got her ADHD diagnosis um, and looking back it's very very clear that their parents and relatives also were autistic or neurodivergent in some way um, but at this stage we haven't described label to anybody because it's it's in the past and it's not necessary not necessary unless that person is seeking it out. So just family history there. Um, but what I do differently as a parent is what a lot of what a lot of things that my parents do differently. And the biggest thing is that I question I question everything because that's who I am. I'm just an inherently curious person. So when somebody when another parent does something a certain way or or I feel the expectation to parent in a certain way, I automatically question it and go, why do I have to do it this way? Why, why is that the norm? And if I can't validate it, then I don't do it. You know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. So I think there is a lot of alternatives around that up to this point, we just haven't been aware of. Absolutely, Amanda. We've just and done what we've done and what our parents yeah. have done. So it really is time for mm. an overhaul and refresher. I love that, an overhaul and a refresher. And I'm so glad that you've got that instinctual questioning um, ability. And, and I love, I, I know we've spoken in the previous title, but I love you know, how your upbringing was so free and easy. And I just, I mean, I'm not to invalidate, I'm sure you had your own challenges, but um, it's just so contrast to what I grew up with. And, and I know many um, will yearn for something like that because sometimes, um, and our parents didn't even realise it themselves, they were expert masters and high-functioning high, high, high functioning, um, 
that's not the right word. I meant to say high masking, (laughs) high masking, because I was taught to do that um, and and to fawn and and didn't wasn't naturally taught boundaries. And I now realise it's because they were neurodivergent. Um, you know, undiagnosed mother who spent a lot of time in bed and um, with postnatal depression and all sorts of things. And it's just, I think, what your last point was, Amanda, it's time for a refresh because, yeah. you know, we can't keep on doing this to ourselves and we need to be brave enough this generation, even if we've been taught to mask, is gently begin that process yeah. for our own sake and for our Children's sake, I'd say. And, oh, Very and, difficult, though, isn't it, to, to go through that process? Yeah, and I think that's where we're really lucky that we have some really good uh, role models out. Yeah. Like, you know, especially um, uh, my brain has escaped me. Um, the fantastic woman who Indian Pathways. Oh, Christy Forbes. Yeah. Christy Forbes. Yes, brain's just lost it, but she's an amazing woman. She is. She's out there and I think because of her PDA, she just says it without yeah. any sort of consequence or offending anybody because basically who gives an effort she does. Um, so if you're starting to be curious about different ways, go to her website, follow her on social because she really can just, she throws up that mirror to say, why? Why have you been doing it this way? And it's mm. a great entry level point. Spot on. Um, I might move on to the next question because it's sort of a good segue. Um, Danielle, I'm going to start with you first. Um, so those who are at home who already um, sort of have their identification, know they're autistic or those who are neuro-questioning, this might be really interesting to see to relate. But I'd love to know what you love, um, what you love about being an autistic parent and perhaps even what you find challenging, um, especially with being an autistic parent. Over to you, Danielle. Thank you. Um, I, just as Amanda was discussing before, um, I think one of the best things is being able to reevaluate how you do things and being able to rewrite the book. Um, we at the start of 2020 um, were hit by a triple whammy of things that would have made an autistic family buckle. We were, we were about to welcome a baby into the house. We got a month's notice to move and um, the horrible C word came around. Um, and that um, certainly put some spanners in the works. And because we were able to rewrite our own book and accept um, what we what was going on at the time and make plans that were accommodating to everyone, we weathered uh, something that would have been traumatic for five autistic or four autistic people to deal with. Um, on top of that, my husband also got his diagnosis last year. That was fun. Um, but the, posit- the, the, the biggest positive for me very much is the connection that I have with my children. Um, the amount of trust and communication and when you break down the barrier of what is communication, how do you communicate? Um, and we all have our own ways um, of doing that. My, my six-year-old sends us little text messages with pictures, emojis or draws us little cards. Um, she's a fantastic artist. Um, and she's, you know, so I, I get to see my children in a whole different light um, and in a way that, you know, I don't think that I would have been able to enjoy them as much had we not had this experience and understanding together. Um, for us very much, you know, when I come to get rewriting the book, I mean, from the ground up, um, we don't get ready for school until eight o'clock and we spend 20 minutes mildly throwing things together and leaving the house because it didn't matter whether it was 6 a.m. or 8 a.m. We're still going to madly throw stuff together at the last minute because that's what they're like. So we might as well make the morning relaxing leading up to it. And it's those little decisions that you make to go, well, you know what, let's look at this and is this really working for us? You know, is this a possible outcome that we want to achieve? It's not. Um, and I'm very lucky that even when it comes to parenting, that we have very, I've, I've got a very good example of what not to do. And I'm sure many parents can relate to that. Um, my parents did the best they could being neurodivergent or, you know, having mental health issues themselves. Um, my mum and I, I absolutely, um, feel for her because she came from an abusive family, went into an abusive relationship and had alcohol problems. Um, and for me to walk away from that and end the cycle, was very, um, it was a lot of work, but it was worth it. And what made that possible was being autistic, was having that different way of thinking. And if it hadn't have been for, you know, that self-evaluation, I don't know whether I would have had the ability or the cognizance to be able to go, no, this isn't for us. 
Um, and I'm very thankful for that. Unfortunately, it does come with challenges. Um, I would love to be able to organize my way out of a paper bag some days. And there are, I just recently came through a space of poor mental health myself where, uh, we, look, honestly, I did three days worth of shopping at a time. Um, I couldn't give a provide a shopping list to save myself. Um, and there are little things that, um, really could be taken care of if, if we were properly funded by NDIS, if there was proper supports and accommodations and community care. Unfortunately, like many parents, uh, we're very isolated, but we chose to do that. Uh, we've curated a group of friends that are neurodivergent. They get what we're going through and just having that parent forgets what you're doing. And I really hope that someone out there is listening and can hear and go, Hey, that's me too. Because you will find your mum friends, you will find your dad friends, you'll find your parent friends. Um, I'm very lucky that I have two or three. Um, and you know, even though we don't see each other often because we're neck deep in our own stresses, we do know that at the end of the day, when I go, oh my god, that meltdown tonight, I'll just, I, I really don't know. If I wanted to have a meltdown, or if the child needed to have, a, one of us needed to have a meltdown to cool down. Um, and just reaching out and knowing that they're there. And the other good part about that is, you know that you're not alone, and that's half the battle just knowing that you're not alone in this world. And we tend to be very isolated. And it would be really great to see, as a change from this, more autistic parents groups and places where other autistic parents can connect with each other because we do need our community. And we are lacking a community. And autistic culture is a culture within itself, which I'll talk about on my presentation and later in the as well. But um, it's a very uh, important part of our identity and to find more like that you do get it. I really think that that's something that would love to see going forward from that. Absolutely. I was just nodding my head throughout that whole conversation. <laughs> I am sure there will be lots of yes, absolutely relate. And I do know you will be talking about autistic culture later. I think it's a, a very important point that you brought up there. And I, I hope, I'm sure one of the next two, um, Alison or, or Amanda may speak about executive functioning. If not, I will. Um, <laughs> I didn't have the executive functioning to answer that. Sorry. <laughs> it is one of my biggest challenges, but um, I think we're going to Amanda next. Amanda, over to you. Hi. Um, I'll start with that. <laughs> um, and then I'll come back to the things that I love. Um, my biggest challenge is executive function, absolutely. Um, and being uh, a double acronym dyad, so ADHD as well as uh, autism, um, I my frontal lobe, just, I don't work anymore. So <laughs> they're gone. They ain't got nothing left. Um, I'm really, really privileged to have a partner that is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, and we've been together since I was 16, so we've grown up together, and uh, he just, we read each other like a book, we can see when the other person needs help, and we balance each other really, really well, so when my executive function falls apart, he very much just takes over. Just all right, you just see this, go into your room, lock yourself down, I'll take care of these things. And you know, equally I do the same for him. Um for those of us like both my parents were single parents for most of my life. Um those who don't have a solid partner there, you need to find a support circle of some kind. You need whether it's family or friends or adopted family, uh, you know, the mum that lives across the road, that the kids go to the same school, that you just seem to kind of connect with, whatever works, um, don't feel afraid to just ask because, it, you know, when you've got the spoons, you can help out them. Um, but you need somebody to tag team on occasion when you just can't. And your brain just melts and you need to just be in bed. You, you need somebody else there. And, um, when your kids are older, it's a little easier. Um, but when they're young, it's really challenging. Um, so yeah, you, you need some kind of support. Other than that, I often, uh, outsource my executive function to my phone. Uh, lots of lists and reminders. Um, I can't cook a meal unless I set the timer because it will get burnt. So I have to make sure I set the timer. Um, 
when I had the students, you know, thankfully, uh, my husband loves cooking. That's how he was raised, whereas I was raised with parents that it's fuel. Really, it's just fuel. There we go, care factor. Um, so teaching my kids to cook at least a couple of basic meals for themselves. My dad only knew how to make toast when he left home. You know, at least gives you the opportunity when you're just completely done. You don't still have to make dinner that night. The kids can make themselves beans on toast or whatever their same food is and they're okay. Um, yeah, I've got some friends there method of dealing with the executive function is to be like a type personality less stuff in the house get rid of everything like do the whole conmari thing get rid of everything that you don't love not your children's things that's their stuff they they do their own but it stays in their room it doesn't spread through the house but if there's less stuff in the house there's less stuff to clean there's less stuff visually as a distraction um, less things to deal with. You don't need a, a 20 person set of crockery for a dinner party. You know, you can always go to the op shop and buy some extras if you have a dinner party, but keep in the house maybe only one for each person or two. There's lots of ways you can deal with things that aren't the norm, but that can work for you. Um, so that's what we're currently doing. We're currently going, right, get rid of all of the crockery except for everybody's favourite plate and food. Because we, we dig through the cupboard to find the one fork we like, right? So why keep seven that you don't use? There's, there's, there's no point in doing that. So outsource things. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I've got a really good friend who just, it's, it's her way or the highway or it doesn't get done and that's it really works for their family it wouldn't work for everybody but it works for them and for dealing with it um the other really challenging thing i found about um, neurodivergent parenting is my own meltdowns because obviously we all get to that point where we just can't anymore um for me what sets me off is when my daughter escalates into a meltdown she ends up um, taking it out on me. And I know it's not me. I don't take it personally, but it does hurt after being yelled at and, and spoken to in a certain way. After a while, my I get frayed and tethered and fall apart. And uh, the best thing I've found is being able to model how to deal with that. So, you know, I will take my try my best in a calm voice to say, I'm not coping. I need a timeout. Really strong voice. Leave the room. Go and scream and stomp outside, and try to deal with my meltdown as best as I can. But there's times when I'm on the kitchen floor with my fingers in my ears, just you know, please leave me alone. Please leave me alone. Um, and my children. That's so true. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. it's, it's foolish not to acknowledge it because yeah. it happens to all of us and. Why hide it? You know? Absolutely. And I find you're speaking my language, Amanda, because having twins now or teens, teen girls, um, they're obviously going through a lot. It's a difficult stage for them. But it brings up my own trauma of dealing with teenagers at that age and you know, the, the mean girl mentality. And I know they're not trying to be mean because their challenges are causing them sensory overload, but it 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 triggers my own rejection yeah. sensitivity issues, my own trauma, and it's really taken a lot to work out, hey, I need to work on this myself because I need to model. And also, if you do have a meltdown, not punish yourself so that they see that it, you don't want them to go through the same spiral themselves. So it's so complicated. Absolutely. It is so complicated. Um, yeah. We've just the timing, we might jump to Alison on this one and we can come back to it because I know, Mandy, you haven't spoken around the positives, so there'll be... the positives, as yes. you mentioned, you go, Alison. We'll, we'll, we'll jump back to it. Um, Alison, over to you. Well, I relate to everything everyone has said so far. <laughs> um, sometimes I think the challenges are the things I love as well. In the end, when I can look back and see how much, how far I've come and how much I've grown... 
and what I've learnt and what I've unlearnt. Um, you know, having a neurodivergent family, um, being an autistic parent requires so much shedding of who we thought we were and what we thought and being present um, with what we need right now. <laughs> um, and that can be really, really hard. Um, but then it's also the thing I love because when I come through that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, look what I just did. And I think the same for my children when they experience the exact same pattern and I can see they've found something really challenging and then I'm like, oh, my gosh, look what they just did. <laughs> um, some of the things I love about being an autistic parent, one of the things I love is just the way I think. This can also be a challenge, but, you know, a few days ago I was sitting at the basketball and I could hear some other mums talking and they were talking about, like, one of them didn't see the school newsletter on time and, and like, the lunchbox, something to do the lunchbox, and then the kids, one of them just through, talking about how the kids just were throwing their clothes on the floor. And I was listening, and, and no, no judgment if that's the kind of thing that you talk about, absolutely. But for me, I couldn't, I couldn't even know how I could be involved, contribute. Like, I didn't, I was able to, to add even a word to that. And also internally, I'm left feeling like, oh my gosh, like people talk about that stuff, which means that they're thinking about that stuff. And the only thing I could think about was the whole existential um, <laughs> around like lunchboxes or emails. Like I'm thinking of this iCloud and the existential thing with like we're clogging up our like why, why are we even sending emails and so. I love, even though that's challenging because I feel different, I love that because I feel so blessed that I am here thinking about the existential issue of email inboxes and not not the three-dimensional, like, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I can't stop laughing because, yes, I do know what you mean. <laughs> I totally I'm sure we all relate. We're such deep thinkers. Yeah, we're the yeah. ones who are going to be able to think outside this. We are the ones who are able to decolonize and break down systems and know what questions to ask and know decipher who to listen to because we have that instinctive sense of right and wrong and questioning. Um, and we're the ones I feel who are who are going to be able to just make such change and movement. Uh, just movement in any direction, whether it turns out to be something we didn't wish we'd done or whether it turns out to be like a mind-blowing change to the world like little Greta does. She's not even little anymore, but, um, you know, like I feel so blessed and grateful and thankful that I am autistic and my children um, are as well. Um, the challenges, but I think that also we sometimes – we feel like we're not allowed to talk about the challenges and I really, in the same way that we would sort of look at spiritual bypassing where we're all like love and light and happy and we're fine and we're good, I think sometimes it can be really detrimental to ourselves to not acknowledge the challenges um, and we can do that in a way that doesn't centre our children or centre, um, you know, um, uh, imply that, autism is difficult or our autistic children are challenging for us. We we don't, you know, we can still acknowledge the difficulties. And one of my big difficulties right now is the physical toll on my body from being hit and pushed and grabbed and headbutted and swung on and moved. And, you know, there's a lot of proprioceptive needs in my family and there's a lot of um, aggression, I guess, that's directed at me as the safe person and the person who's always there, the anchor, who of course they're going to come to, um, but, you know, I get swung on and pushed and physically that's a real toll. So, like, that's today, that's the challenge that I'm living with is, like, the neck and the thought thing. Um, but you can't even quantify the – I can't even really put into words – the way that being an autistic parent is such a blessing because it has broken me down. I'm, I'm like a completely new person with thresholds I did not know that I could possibly have. 
And I remember for years thinking like, how do people even survive? Like, how do people, being an autistic person as well, and having conflicted needs within the family, so like different siblings having different needs, some need noise, some like one of them needs heaps of noise, one of them needs silence, one of them needs to move, one of them needs to be still. I need no one to touch me. They need to touch me. You know, all of this stuff. It's it just it's a constant source of like survival. We are constantly in survival mode, and so I'm constantly thinking, how do we survive this? And then I and then I realize like we are surviving this, and I I realize like I am a person who is stronger than I ever could have imagined, and my children will be too because of their neurology. And it's a blessing. It's a challenge and a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. So well said. Yeah. Round of applause on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a challenge and a blessing. And it's we you spoke a little bit about that whole competing needs. And I, I'm sure people will relate physically, sensory, all of that is so, so important to hear. Um, Danielle, you wanted to make one quick point to that before we jump on to Amanda. Thank you so much. I um I completely forgot to mention um, I actually have a baby. Um, and babies are a sensory experience in and of themselves. And one of the things I think we forget in those early days is how much of a sensory hell that is for parenting. Um, I breastfeed, um, which was um, which is the ultimate compromise, I think, of an autistic mother's personal space um, because you are called upon 24 hours a day. And as you were the start of your your life at that point, is you're called upon 27 hours a day, letdowns are painful. We also have higher instances of breastfeeding aversion, things like that. Um, and so the toolbox of things that we need as parents is quite different because of our challenges. But the sensory experience from ba- from from babyhood is just so deep, and because autism tends to be a sensory um, perception difference, um, and we have a lot of issues where the sensory needs are heightened or lesser. Um, I think that there, in terms of awareness of parenting and support, there also needs to be consistency in that too, because it's challenging being a new mum and not knowing what to do. And then it's challenging having that sensory um, apprehension or sensory need that you can't get and can't achieve with having a small baby um, when you're already not knowing what you're doing. Um, and so that, that was the point that I just wanted to highlight. So. Really good point. Thank you. I'm sure there's a lot of, we do need to hear more information about, you know, that whole pregnancy stage even as an autistic individual and, and becoming a mother. So it's really important. Especially we've got kids that are going to be hopefully having children of themselves, of themselves, yeah. and being able to approach it from a neurodivergent um, perspective. Yeah, thank you, thank you for that input. Really, really important. Um, so, Amanda, I'm going to jump to you because hopefully this gives you a bit of a chance to add in some of those positives we were talking about earlier. But love to hear about radical acceptance and what that means to you and your family. I know for me, it's really about accepting that we need downtime after social events and it's all of us and we just all go our separate ways. We accept it now. We don't question it. We don't put pressure on ourselves. And it's really changed the way we've worked as a family. I'd love to hear you, Amanda, how, um, how you've used radical acceptance. Um, in all honesty, I'm only new to the term radical acceptance. Oh. I think because it's, it's all really helpful how I've always parented. Um, and, uh, so I haven't had to change to it from something else. Um, so for me, the idea of radical acceptance is, is about how we're changing our, change our thinking about parenting. So like we were talking about earlier, instead of our first thought being teaching what we think we should teach our children, raising them how we think they should be raised, instead flipping it and going, mine and my children's mental health is more important than what society wants of them. So how do I raise them with that as the foremost thing? So if, for example, uh, their school uniform, they don't want to wear it. Instead of just trying to force them to wear it or getting them used to it over a long amount of time, what are the other options? So a friend's child um, has a whole bunch of co-occurring conditions and uh, his child really can't wear fabric except for like T-shirt jerseys. So they were unaware of this, but you know you can get fabric digitally printed online. 
not even from America, there's local in Australia places. So why not get the school uniform fabric to check printed on that and then get it turned into a tunic dress so that the child can wear the right uniform but in the fabric that suits them. So it's just about thinking there are other options. There's not just plan A or B, there's often C, B, E or F. And what can work for all parties involved? You know, the child, this particular child um, can't wear closed in toed shoes. So they have a favourite pair that obviously is worn and worn and worn to death. But from a school perspective, they have to wear the white shoes. Well, if the school's not willing to budge, maybe there's a compromise. Can they wear their shoes but in the school colour? There's, there's always an option, you know, like compromise so that the child's mental health is uh, first and foremost. I think it's, it's really important. And thinking about, all right, is it really important that we get to school exactly on time? For one of my children, yes. For the other child, not so much. And so if it worse comes to worse, one child will go to school and then come back and then I will get the second child to school. So that the first child gets there on time, gets to see their friends in the morning, gets to do the things that they need for their mental health, and then the second child goes at a later date a later time so that they're not having a breakdown in the morning. Not the end of the world to do two trips to school. No, like interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess as a even to add a layer of complexity to that though, if you're a neurodivergent parent who um, you know, maybe high masking or also perfectionist, it's about checking yourself as well in that situation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Is it is it worth you and your child's sanity to fight them in the morning to get them in a car in the car at a certain amount certain time. No, no, it's not. Um, and hopefully uh, the school is willing to you know compromise a little and you can work together with that. Um, you know, foods and dinners. Is it the end of the world if every dinner is a snack plate? You know, it could be served in a muffin tray for tod. You know how we all did that thing for toddlers, different foods in a muffin tray or in different places so they could try all the different things. What's wrong with serving that to a twelve-year-old? There's nothing wrong with that. You know, if, if the child's diet is reasonable and they're getting a an okay a variety of foods within their diet over a month period. You don't need to force new things into them if they're okay over that time. Or if their diet's not great but they'll tolerate a multivitamin and they're okay, you know? Like, I think radical acceptance is it's about questioning the things we feel like we have to do and finding another solution that works for your family and your children. Aha, absolutely. And I think sometimes if we listen to our own instincts, we hopefully won't put that usual pressures and stresses that many neurotypical parents can unknowingly give their children. I think there's a great quote, and we'll share it at the end of this, from an autistic parent. I think it's Nicola from an Guardian um, who says that being autistic is meant for autistic children have grown up without the usual pressures and stresses that neurotypical parents unknowingly subject their children to. On that note, I will pass on to Alison because I'm sure you've got some great content and then Danielle will jump to you after that. This is a great segue to what I was going to say, which is that I've really, really let go of the idea of eating together as a family. And that was deep because my family ate together as a family. We all had our same spots. We set the table the same way. It was like so ritualistic. Um, and it took me a long time of going, oh, my gosh, I'm a bad mum. If I don't have dinner for us all, firstly, I don't cook. My husband does it because executive functioning. However, I have completely let go of the idea of eating together at night time because one of my children needs to move, constantly move by the end of the day. The other one needs to be completely away from all of us. And so in accepting, in radically accepting this shift in what I thought it meant 
that was part of what being a good family or doing it right was all about, I have actually um, learned that when you let your children eat wherever, while they're watching TV or running in and out and just grabbing something and running somewhere else and going home, then my husband and I get to sit together like a date each night, just the two of us. And the kids are just running around and eating wherever they want. And it's bloody amazing. And if I hadn't trialed this, I would never have known. So people who are wondering <laughs> um, about how the exciting bonuses of radical acceptance can be, all of a sudden you can learn all these amazing things like why isn't everyone doing this? And also I have, um, for me, I guess radical acceptance is probably, I mean, that's a cool example, but less about the things that we are doing in our routine and more about like deep embodied knowing that we are enough and deep embodied knowing that what my children need is what they need and that's okay. Um, and so that has meant I have had to really sit with the discomfort that comes with doing things differently to what I perceived I was meant to do as a parent. Uh, it's also meant sitting within my own traumas. You know, I was someone who was force-fed. I, I don't want to say force-fed. Well, I guess, yeah, I was force-fed. I mean, I was made to sit at the table until I ate everything. Uh, and sometimes my parents would put, you know, food in my mouth. It, it was never done aggressively. I don't know if I feel like this should be preceded with a trigger warning. Using those words sounds really harsh. And it, it does make bring tears to my eyes, the memory of it and the thought of it. Um, and, you know, in the 80s, that was kind of how things were done and we wouldn't do that now. But I, I have traumas and repressed memories that have surfaced since being an autistic parent. So when I started feeding my children, the memories started coming back. Um, and I am, I can never, ever encourage my children to eat. Like if we're at the table, they're not, they're not eating. I'm like, that's fine. You don't have to eat. Like I, I am so far the other way of, of, not having a balanced idea of how to manage this because of my own stuff that I've experienced. And I've had to radically accept that that's okay. And I don't have to get it right. I don't, I'm not a dietitian. Like I'm not a specialist in that area. So no matter what I do, I'm probably not going to be doing it right. So I'm, I recognize my own difficulties, my own challenges, my own traumas, my own experiences. And I have really like, sat in the discomfort of it all. I know it sounds cliche to say it like that, but that's literally what I've had to do. And just just know that it's okay for me to, for me to be uncomfortable with these situations. Um, it doesn't mean I have to find a way to fix it or change it. So, um, yeah, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, self-acceptance, absolutely. I think radical acceptance as a family begins with that self-acceptance and you've been given a really good example because I am sure many will relate back to that. I was having flashbacks um, to that whole situation around force feeding and I think as a social justice warrior as well, I think that plays into when I see something unfair and I, if I see my partner trying to enforce some of those boundaries, it triggers me and I'm like, no, 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 no. And, and I, I, um, so I relate and I'm sure many listening at home will relate. So thank you for that perspective. Um, I'm going to go to Danielle if that's okay on this topic. Um, so much more to cover. So thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you so much. I think as well, um, a lot of us parents where, because we tend to be with partners, but also, um, neurodivergent as well, um, we're working with someone to undo a lot of the traumas as well, just on that, because food for us was, was a thing. Um, and I'm very lucky that I have everything from 17 to 1. So I actually get to see the difference that my radical acceptance journey has made along my parenting. Um, in a very unique way. I have a very compliant 17 year old and a six year old who, oh, we don't have dinner. Well, she doesn't have dinner. <laughs> she sits at the table for a few minutes and watches on a tablet, and she's the one sitting at the tablet on a, at the table on a tablet. I'm sure our pediatrician would be mortified if he knew, but it means that she eats. So we'll take that. 
Um, so for us, you know, the question comes to you, it's radical acceptance. And many of us, as you said before, come from traumatic backgrounds. Um, and I think we have to be forced into a form of radical acceptance at a young age because we have no control over that situation that we're in. And so we tend to let ourselves redo it. And part of that radical acceptance is losing the radical judgment. Um, and that's, as everyone said, you know, around the norms of parenting, you know, we have to sit at the table and eat. We have to have our children fully dressed in school uniform. And I've kids to go to a, a Catholic school. So it's, of course, you know, proper everything. And, and it's very difficult to meet all those um, requirements. So you really do have to have a judgment on yourself of whether this is an adequate thing for your family. Uh, but if in our family, it's very much a case of you radically accept or you radically protect. And if you think about it, you either accept what's happening or it's going to be a meltdown. And I think that's the, the, the nice edge that a lot of us live on is that if you don't radically accept what's happening to you here and now in this instance, and this comes with your diagnosis, with sensory flare-ups, with meltdowns, you need to, the reason why you're flaring up and having those is because you are protecting yourself. And when you extrapolate from that, um, it makes things just a little bit, you sort of understand a little bit more of the situation. And for us, radical acceptance um, is a, a very, um, it, it's part of everything that we do. And for, um, we find that if we make that radical acceptance on the things that are important to life, not eating at the table, making sure you get enough food, so, you know, you, you take a pack of chips and go outside or go sit somewhere um, instead of having to force them to the table to eat cheese. Um, we, if we don't do that, we, we tend to not be able to pull them where, when it's needed. And I think that comes down to the safety issue of mental health. Um, when you work with your children to use the radical acceptance that we need in their, in their favour um, and in a positive way, you don't end up in those situations where they feel like they can't say, hey, this isn't working for me, Mum. Um, and a big thing is, we we're talking about things that we all do in examples of radical acceptance. We don't run a schedule in our house at all because there are PDA kids that have kids that need routine. Um, I've got a whole spectrum of it here. Um, but we do structure versus schedule. So our mornings, we know that from about 5.30, it's been time for dinner, that dinner goes on the table. When dinner's finished, it's time for medication, it's time for, for showers, it's time for that. And there's a, there's a flow. And so we to work on the flow and tie our flow around things than work on the actual schedule itself. Um, the school's the same thing. Um, thankfully, Bluey finishes at the time we have to leave the school and all hail Bluey um, because there have been some great lessons from Bluey for us. The tactical we was a good one. Thank you um, for that. Um, but, you know, when that show finishes, it's a trigger. And we use that sensory stuff to go with our kids. So they know when they hear that sound, oh, we've got to get our stuff together. Oh, we've got to do our 20-minute rush around and get ready now. And it's a race. It, it, it creates a sense of fun and wondering what we're going to do today because we've had all morning to relax. Um, and I, I'm very, uh, I think the big thing that we want to remember with our kids is that they don't have control over a lot. And that's really what they're crying out for is that little bit of control. And radical acceptance is almost the opposite of that, but it actually isn't. We think that it's limiting but it's actually freeing if we can use it in a, a way that works for our children. And again, reevaluating our goals as parents and moving away from those judgments as, as parents, you can create that environment and watch your children and yourselves thrive. And that's the hardest part is um, when you take it on as a parent, you're the facilitator. You've got to have the executive function for everyone. Um, and I struggle with that myself because I am, I'm the spokesperson and executive function for three people. Um, our fauna now, and um, it, it's hard, and you do have to take that time for yourself when you also yourself can find the grace to radically accept yourself. That's so powerful. Um, being thank you so much, Danielle. Um, there's an, a previous panel that we talk about um, around pace strategy, and it's it's a whole strategy to to support your children. But I think if we can use that for ourselves and use acceptance and empathy to ourselves. I'm curious about what we're going through. I think that goes a long way. So thank you. So we had so much covered here today. I'm so honoured to be here with Amanda, Danielle and Alison. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective of autistic parenting. I think so many at home will just absolutely love what's said today. So thank you for being here. 
Thank you for listening to episode 8 of our Autistic Girls and Teens Mental Health Podcast Series. Please be sure to check out the link to the resources for this episode, which can be found in the written information for this podcast series. This concludes this eight-part podcast series. We would like to thank you for listening and please keep an eye out for new episodes from Yellow Ladybugs in the future. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. It's been a real pleasure to be able to bring you this information on such important topics. If you found something valuable, please make sure you share it amongst your community. It's really important to raise awareness on this topic. Of course, don't forget to download any of the resources that we mentioned in all the eight episodes. And please stay tuned because we're going to have further series with lots of different speakers. So thank you for being part of this journey.